You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Welcome to Grace Community Church. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace, and we're so glad that you have chosen to worship with us. Uh, Jeff or David mentioned we got a lot of people away camping, and that's that's all right. You can have. I've had all the camping I ever want to do. Believe me, at my years at TVR, I was just thinking this morning what a commitment it is for the worship team members. Uh, they're here from early in preparation all the way through the end of the second service. I mean, their entire Sunday morning is given to serving the body of Christ here at Grace Community Church. So grateful for all that they do. And I want to say a word about uh, VBS as well. Several years ago, I was listening to one of the sessions uh, that Keisha was teaching. And I said afterwards, "That is the where did you get this VBS material? That's by far the best presentation of the gospel I've ever heard. And it took me away. She wouldn't say it, but finally she said, well, I supplemented it. And I'm like, yeah, you supplemented it. Okay. Really, I've never seen VBS material that I'm excited about as far as the sharing of the gospel. Keisha really does a great job. All of the people here. So if you know any children anywhere that you can drag, bribe, whatever you have to do to get them here, uh, get them here. And I think they will be blessed. Well, how many times have you heard or thought one of the following things? Oh, if only this celebrity, this athlete, this performer, this writer would get saved. Just think of how much he could do for the kingdom of God. Or only if, if only my child would just read this book, she would understand what I've been trying to tell her all along. Or if my pastor could speak to my friend, surely conversion would follow. The list could go on, but you get the point. We are hardwired to fix things and to fix people, are we not? And what better fix than the gospel? Just tell somebody the gospel that'll fix all their problems. We think that once we finally believe the truth, even if we've been resisting the truth for 30 years, we think that we should be able then to convince everybody else of the truth of the gospel. Surely we can uh, get someone who has been resisting for, for so long to, to let down their guard and believe. Or now I can answer my friend's objections to the faith because I've taken apologetics course. And surely when I share this good news, he's going to believe. Case closed, as it were. Some of us just never learn. Until our dying day, we will assume if we get the right hands or the right information into the right hands of, uh, of the people that we love, then they will believe. It's that simple. And, and there is some truth to that. You have to hear the gospel in order to believe it, right? But we think if we can just say it this way or that way, then surely it will make sense. It is, though, the message of the cross and God's power through the work of the Holy Spirit only 
that leads people to faith in Christ. Our text today is 1 Corinthians 2 verses 1 through 5 where the focus is on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This theme runs all the way through 1 Corinthians. I thought about titling the entire series, Jesus Christ and Him Crucified. Even though the writings of the Apostle Paul are among some of the most sophisticated of the ancient world, he did not rely on his knowledge or abilities or persuasion or his abilities of persuasion to convince others. Instead, he relied on the power of God to transform lives through the simple preaching of the gospel of Jesus, at the heart of which is Christ and him crucified. So let's read our text, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. If you would please stand as the word is being read. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. And by the way, let me just say before I begin reading, when Paul talks about, I didn't come to you with wisdom, he's not saying that there's no wisdom worthy of being pursued. And my goodness, Scripture is full of saying, learn the wisdom of God, the wisdom of the worldly from God in His Word. But he's talking about worldly wisdom. He's talking about worldly ways of looking at life and articulating ideas and positions. So he says, And when I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of of God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you and be seated. So let's work our way through this passage by applying counters. We go three with three different emphases, beginning with the counterintuitive message of the gospel is never going to be easy. Easy what? I mean, easy to believe, easy to understand, easy to live. Yes, all of the above and much, much more. If you have been saved for a long time, you might not remember how opposed you once were to the idea that you could simply confess your sins and believe that Jesus died for you. And voila, you're saved. Maybe you thought it was too simple to say a prayer and that's it. You're right about that, but not in the way necessarily that you thought at the time. Most likely, you thought you had to earn your salvation and that to say a prayer for salvation was a cheap way to get to heaven. Or maybe you were afraid the opposite, that you would turn into a fanatic and you didn't want that. And in fact, let's face it, anybody who lives a life Worthy of the Lord, as Ephesians 4 tells us, is going to be considered a fanatic. When 1 Corinthians was written, both religious 
and pagan people alike thought it was the most ridiculous notion ever proposed that the Savior of mankind would die a despicable death on a despicable Roman cross. I, I really don't know that there's any way we can wrap our minds around how awful it was to die on a Roman cross in that way. With such humiliation, <clears throat> such awful pain and agony. But the humiliation and the loneliness was awful as well. Because to be associated with the criminal who was crucified was to come under suspicion. So <clears throat> Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took quite a risk asking for the body of Jesus after he had been crucified. Because, ah, keep an eye on that guy. I don't know what he's up to. You will recall <clears throat> from 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This phrase has captured my imagination over and over in the book of 1 Corinthians. We ought to think more about salvation as those who are being saved. Not as, I was saved back then, now I'm walking with the Lord. No, it's a process. We are being saved. Once you make that decision, you're going to be with God in eternity. But we take this life too lightly if we don't recognize, perhaps, that we are being saved. And to those who are perishing, they're on the way to destruction. It's foolishness, but to us it is the power of God. And then verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. When you first believed the gospel, if you were, say, 13, 14 or older, your eyes were suddenly open to the magnificent truth of God's redemption. And what seemed crazy a week ago now is the most logical, rational argument that's ever been presented. Many new believers are, are amazed that everyone doesn't believe. But it doesn't take too long to recognize how foolish those who do not believe in Jesus in the way that we do, that he died for our sins. Think how foolish people think it is. And of course, anyone who believes a foolish thing is what? <clears throat> a fool. No one likes to be thought a fool. Okay, well, you can name an exception here or there. This <clears throat> pastor that I used to know, John Gamble, said he had heard a, a guy on the radio, a preacher on the radio who was glorifying his ignorance. And he said, I'm getting ignoranter and ignoranter every day. <clears throat> and Gamble said, he didn't have to tell us. We knew that. <clears throat> so there are maybe some people that say, yeah, I'm a fool and proud. But most of us don't. We don't want to be. <clears throat> and so we, we seek to make the gospel message palatable and attractive. We minimize the differences between us and the world. And it's maybe one of the reasons that Christians get so caught up in social and political 
causes. We long to fit in rather than to be different and the kind of different that makes us unattractive to the world. And so we ultimately end up being ostracized. If we're not careful, though, we'll find far more union with unbelievers than we do with Christians who disagree with us on guns or economic policies or masks or, or just name it. There's always something that you look at other believers and say, how do you believe that? Well, my buddies over here believe it. They're not Christians, but they're on the right track. And, and, and look, I know we can justify every position with Scripture. But somehow, we're missing the priority of the gospel in many of the things about which we are passionate. And if we think we have it bad, just imagine how difficult it is for our children, especially in children in public schools. You don't have to be in a public school, though, to face intense pressure to have an unbiblical view of sex outside of marriage and, and, and the nature of marriage itself and the treatment of those with whom you disagree just to get started on the issues. Intense pressure. Which is why I think maybe the reason that we see so many committed college students and high school students is it's one way or the other. There is no in-between. I guess we can thank the world for making that clear. For a long time, the gospel in America has been, hey, yeah, that's kind of what we do in America. We're Christians, right? It won't be that way anymore going forward. Except that it's still getting muddled up, isn't it? The gospel is getting muddled up with political issues, social issues. And we find ourselves confused at best. In the parable of the sower, Jesus identified four groups of people who at least hear the word of God. Some, it just goes in one ear, out the other. Others really like it. They like this. They receive it with joy. But then, you know, the cares of the world... Uh, the deceitfulness of riches kind of choke it out. Others receive it, but then under the wilting heat of persecution, it just kind of fade away. One group out of the four, one out of the four received the word and produced much fruit. Jesus never said this life would be easy. Last week, uh, Allison, uh, I've been for the last week and a half trying to get Allison retired. She is going to be really close to retiring in the next couple of days. There have been a lot of celebrations where people have been so gracious and kind and encouraging in the words that they've said. And she really is, has been just a, an anchor in that school at Trinity Academy up in Raleigh. Um, but I was so glad to hear that the, that the headmaster, Timothy Bridges, was going to speak at the graduation where Allison prayed for the graduates. But I really like him. And he was challenging uh, the, the students. Well, I'll tell you this before. 
His timing is perfect. He's just, he's, he's, he's really dry, you know, kind of things. He says, to the graduates and to the guests, I will make this blessedly brief. And in conclusion, but the way he said it was way, it's really funny. It was just funny to be there. But when he challenged the students, he said, the first thing is this, understand this. Conviction and convenience rarely intersect. Conviction and convenience rarely intersect. Then he went on to say, to challenge them to be lifelong learners to the glory of God. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Family members will turn against one another over the gospel. Jesus told his followers, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. Paul arrived at Corinth sharing the gospel with fear and trembling. Now it's clear from the first chapter and all the way through verse 5 that Paul lacked the goods to hang with the best philosophers and debaters that the city could offer up, even if he was so not lacking in speaking skills. He knew, though, that it would not be his persuasive reasoning that would win them to Christ. Why do you think it was that Paul shared the gospel with fear and trembling? Maybe he remembered the beatings that he had taken in several cities already for sharing this same gospel. Or maybe he knew that the gospel would sound foolish to the people of such an important cosmopolitan city. And if either one of those is the case, then we have to admire Paul's courage. It's also likely that Paul truly understood what was at stake eternally for his listeners. As Paul would tell the same people in the letter we know as 2 Corinthians... He was compelled both by the fear of the Lord and by the love of Christ to preach the gospel. Why? Because he understood the second point of focus in from our text. Jesus Christ and him crucified is a way of life as well as the message that leads to eternal life. Who does not want to prove, improve his position in life? Who doesn't want to influence the world around her? Is it wrong to pursue excellence in business or for athletes to train vigorously for competition or teachers and professors to study hard and to do their very best work as they teach and as they Right in professional journal? No, look, no, it's not wrong at all. We're called to excellence. Paul affirms uh, the hardworking farmer, the intensely dedicated athlete, and the disciplined soldier in 2 Timothy 2. Then he goes on in chapter 3, verse 12 of 2 Timothy to say, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everything Jesus did was leading to the cross. 
When we follow Jesus, we're called to take up our cross and follow him. The balance in scripture is remarkable. We die, yet we live. We are humbled, yet we are lifted up. We have great sorrow, yet we rejoice in the resurrection power and life that comes for those who are willing to go to the cross. The resurrection does not come. The resurrected life does not come apart from the cross-centered or the cruciform life. In Romans chapter 1, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul engaged the educated and the untrained, the sophisticated and the not so sophisticated, the rich and the poor, slaves, free, men, women. He engaged everyone. Paul understood as well as anybody did that the world truly is divided into two groups of people. And it's not Jews and everybody else. It's not religious and non-religious. It's saved and lost. Or, more specifically, it is those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To fulfill his obligation to the educated, no doubt, Paul was always studying, constantly learning. The point of 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 is that while it might be an advantage to be able to speak on a level that gains one an audience with all different types of groups, it is not one sophisticated apologetics that wins others, but rather the simple message of the cross. That's where God's power resides. The simple message of the cross. Therefore, the message of the cross is best shared by one who lives a cross-centered life. Since we are not naturally inclined to take up our crosses daily, in his merciful and gracious sovereignty, God often builds weaknesses into our lives to help us remember we're not all that. One goal is to point others to the cross of Jesus. Now, one great leader of apologetics movements used to say that the goal ought to be not to obstruct the cross. We need to get out of the way of the cross. And we can obstruct it by the way we live, by the way we share the message. All of that's important. But that's where we're pointing to it ultimately is with the cross God does not allow his children to live a triumphalist lifestyle. Now, that's not a word that I use very often. A lot of preachers do. I don't use it very often. Triumphalism, not Trumpism, okay? Triumphalism. Let's think about this word for just a moment. The classic definition is an excessive celebration and boasting about, about one's successes. Man, I'd love to do that about my sports teams, but they so rarely win at all, you know? 
I mean, I'm ready at any moment to be a triumphalist or have this kind of attitude. I just don't get to very often. It's particularly used in the political and athletic arenas. Why is it that it's so difficult for a team to repeat as Super Bowl champions when the only change to their rosters have been positive? They've added really great players. They haven't lost anybody. They've just added great players. Now, you can talk about chemistry and all of that, but could be that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's just one reason, and God is constantly warning us about that. In church life, triumphalism reveals itself in a spirit that boasts that our church is better than any other church. Our denomination, our doctrine, our methods, our results are better. So you really ought to do it the way we do it. Churches often compare their giftedness, their preaching, their worship team, their stance on masks. Once again, you name it, we are just better than. Do you see how triumphalism was on display at Corinth? We follow Paul while we follow Apollos. He's a lot better speaker. Well, we follow Christ. Paul's saying, get over that. There is a cure. Jesus Christ and him crucified as a way of life as well as understanding it to be the message that only Jesus saves. Maybe the only letter that Paul wrote to churches in which his frustration and anger was more evident than it was in 1 Corinthians was in the book of Galatians. Paul was mad when he wrote 1 Corinthians. He was hopping mad when he wrote Galatians. And what in Galatians was they were an even bigger problem with the gospel. It's not that they were boasting about their way of believing, but they were saying, you know, we agree with Paul that Jesus is the way to salvation, but these guys have come in from Jerusalem and they've told us that you have to keep the law as well. So it's Jesus plus keeping the law, that's what'll get you saved. And look, we're all tempted to that, right? I mean, when you've been struggling with a sin or your attitude or something that you just know that this is not pleasing to the Lord, it's tempting to think, you know, I better straighten up a little bit so that I can make sure that I'm saved. That's not what God calls us to. He calls us to this table, to this meeting of believers. He calls us to his word to constantly call us to a life of repentance and trusting God, not only for our salvation, but for sanctification in our lives. But he was telling the Galatians, no, it is not Jesus. Jesus plus anything, Paul said, equals condemnation. Jesus plus nothing equals redemption. Jesus alone can save. And so what better way to promote this message than to live that cruciform life? Thus, Paul wrote to his friends in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I 
who live. Wait a minute, this is starting to sound like a fanatic. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a good verse to memorize if you haven't already. Last, our faith supplied by the Holy Spirit and revealed to be the power of God must be in Jesus and not merely faith in faith. You hear so many people that they talk about faith. I've got faith that it'll happen. What's your faith in? I don't know, just faith. No, faith. How is it that educated, sophisticated, wealthy people come to Christ? Well, first of all, you have to know that that is not the norm. There's a lot of education and sophistication going on in this room. I don't know how much money there is going on in this room. But it's not the norm for people who have a lot and who are successful in this world. To come to Christ. Now, a lot of the people who come to Christ end up becoming very successful because whenever you live according to biblical principles, you're going to be more successful in life. But after success, of course, the temptation is pride and a fall, and the gospel moves on seeking out the poor. I don't suppose there are many here this morning who would not want to be considered wise in the eyes of the world. Probably most of us would satisfy, be satisfied with being wise in the eyes of our families, but good luck with that, right? How is it that anyone believes the gospel? This message that we can never be good enough to earn our salvation, but that Jesus came to die for our sins so that when we recognize our distance from God and our need to confess our sins and to put our trust in Christ. It is then that we are saved. How is it? There is nothing we can do to earn this salvation. We can only believe. And how is it that we believe that which we cannot see? By faith. This would be a good time to revisit our text. And as we do, look for the truth of this last point, that our faith, supplied by the Holy Spirit and revealed to be the power of God, must be in Jesus and not merely just faith. There has to be a trustworthy object if our faith is going to mean anything. 1 Corinthians 2, 1, And I... When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or the world's wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. You can imagine Paul. Oh, sharing the gospel like this. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. I didn't try to convince you. I just told you. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power. 
so that your faith might not rest in some ethereal notion or idea or in the wisdom of men, but rather in the power of God. In 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, when Paul speaks of power, he's referring to that which is effective. The power of God really changes us. I remember many times I tried to turn over a new leaf in my life, we used to call it. I was going to change. I was going to be better. And something had convinced me. But when Jesus saved me, I knew there was not a doubt in my mind. This was permanent because this was not something I had done. We can only believe this gospel to be true by faith. Faith does not come via reason, although the gospel is reasonable, as our witness should be. Faith is supplied by the Holy Spirit, and faith affirms the power of God. This is all going to be seen so clearly next week as we finish 1 Corinthians 2 and this work of the Spirit in our lives and helping us, causing us to believe and then leading us into God's wisdom. The world is asking a lot of questions in our day. Where was God when... Fill in the blank from the last month. When this happened. How could a loving God allow this to happen to me? I rarely, I almost never form those words, but I'm asking it in, in different ways. But the Bible's not answering those questions. The Bible wasn't written to answer that. The question that the Bible is answering is this. What has God done about it? What has he done about the tragedies, the injustices, the inequities of life? That's the question that the Bible answers. And it centers on the cross. All sins, all injustices, both great and small, were addressed. At the cross, you're never going to get justice for the most horrible things that come against you. You can never make things back the way they were. And maybe you're satisfied if the court system does what it's supposed to, which it rarely does anymore. But we're never going to get justice until the day of judgment. And then, all that was accomplished at the cross is going to fall out one way or the other. And those who believe, those who trust Jesus, will go into eternal life. And those who don't believe, those whose hope has been in finding a way to get revenge or even, even justice, but they didn't put their trust in Christ, they... They thought that there was some other way. 
must be some other way because that's foolishness, that gospel. They will go to eternal destruction. On that day, all people will be classified as sheep or goats. Not any longer those who are being saved or those who are perishing, but those who are saved and those who go off to eternal punishment. The world will not be divided by socioeconomic classes or abilities or knowledge or political affiliation. Justice, justice will be had. Justice will be done. Justice will be served. How can we make such a statement? By faith. Faith, that this is God's word, and it tells us how we can know God. And it points us to faith in the one that it unceasingly presents to us, Jesus. And when the Bible points to Jesus, it points especially to the cross. Jesus' sacrificial death is at the center of everything. And our lives are to mirror his resurrection, joy. All of that is all through scripture. But again, it does not come apart from a cruciform life. The difference for us now that we believe it, is that we patiently, we can patiently rejoice knowing that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 1.18. Amen. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. I bet they're not five of you in the, in the house, maybe not two, that remember the old Gaither song, I believe, help my unbelief. I long so much to feel the touch that others seem to know, but if I never feel a thing, I'll trust him even so. I sing it all the time. I just find myself singing it. Maybe because I need it. I believe, help my unbelief. It is with gratitude and in faith that we approach the Lord's table today. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if your only hope of heaven is in Him, then we invite you. You don't have to be a member of our church. We invite you to participate in this meal with us. So as the elders and deacons come forward to serve, I'm going to give instructions for us and then... The Lord will set the table for us from his word. We're going to have an elder and a deacon and or deacon in front of each section. The four sections will come forward to receive the elements, and 
you'll take the elements, you'll come down these interior aisles, and you'll go back up either the center or the outer. We'll have um, ushers to help alert you when it's your time uh, to come. So take the elements, the bread and the juice, back to your seat if you would, and then wait and we'll partake all together. I'll serve the servers afterwards and then we will uh, partake. You know, when the Lord invites us to this table, some people present the time of reflection that comes before we partake of the elements in such a way that it makes you fearful to come. Oh, I'm sinning and I've sinned this, I've committed this sin, I've done it three times this week and I've done it a thousand times and every time I... Look, the one who said, forgive your brother 70 times 7, surely forgives us in that way. This table is about forgiveness. If you're arrogantly sinning and you plan to keep doing so and you want to say everything's cool with me and God, well then don't be careful about partaking. If you don't know Christ, probably best if you, you don't partake of the elements. But when Paul calls us to this table in 1 Corinthians 11, as we'll get to, he calls us to reflect, confess any sins, examine ourselves, confess any sins. So I want to do that for just a moment. Take a moment for you in your heart to confess to the Lord any sins that you've committed and, and he'll cover the ones that we can't remember. But just take a, take a moment and bring your sins to the Lord and confess to him. And then I'll close this in prayer and we'll get ready for the table after that. Father, we confess to you that we're sinners. We, we eagerly anticipate this meal in which we are reminded that Jesus gave his body and spilled his blood for our redemption. We confess to you, Lord, that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. We confess to you that we have done things we ought not to have done. And we have left undone things that we ought to have done. We think about the beauty of the gospel. We're overwhelmed with gratitude and wonder. Wonder that you would look down and and build faith into our hearts through the Spirit, the power of God, the effective power of the Spirit comes upon us and causes us to believe. We believe and we do uh, confess our belief at this table where we remember <clears throat> the weakness of Christ, the intentional weakness of our creator <coughs> who died <clears throat> that we might live and it's in his name that we offer thanks <clears throat> for these elements amen
just before the servers take their place, you think about the cruciform life, the cross-centered life, and how difficult that is. And, and to remember again that sometimes God builds these weaknesses into our lives to help us. When we stand before Him at the judgment seat, we're going to be only sorrowful about the things that we didn't do through a cross-centered and resurrection-filled life. And so the very thing that has been so painful to you, so hurtful these last weeks or months or years may be God's beautiful mercy in making you like Jesus and bringing you into fellowship at a level that you can never go to on your own. It's the power of God that makes us believe and that leads us to this place where others look at us and they see Jesus. That's our desire. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.